There are certain moments that haunt the people of South Dunedin, like in 2015. At least 200 properties have been flooded in Dunedin in what is being described as the heaviest rain the city's had in nearly 200 years. South Dunedin's main strip, King Edward Street, is a mess. Dozens of shops were flooded despite sandbags lining the doorways. Overwhelmed shop owners tried to sweep away the water. Oh my goodness. I'm not 100 years old, but I've seen some good ones in Dunedin, but that was back in the 70s when I was a kid, but this is the worst one I've ever seen here. Can't go nowhere, you can't do nothing. Then, in 2018. Floodwaters do appear to be receding in Dunedin after the city was hit by torrential rain. Many schools closed early and a state of emergency was declared there. More than 100 millimetres of rain fell in Dunedin yesterday, with nearly half of it arriving in the space of four hours, leaving flood-prone South Dunedin the worst hit. So storm after storm, something's got to be done, right? Well, last week... Dunedin authorities have taken the first step towards some hard climate change decisions. 16 different options have been presented for the future of flood-prone South Dunedin. But there's still uncertainty about costs and residents won't know if they have to abandon their homes for at least another two years. Kia ora, I'm Tom Kitchen and today on The Detail, what are these ideas for a new look South D, as the locals call it? How are these ideas developed? And how soon do they need to be implemented as we prepare for an onslaught of climate change challenges? First, let's get a picture of what South Dunedin's all about. Here's Tess Brunton, RNZ's Otago Southland journalist. So Dunedin is incredibly hilly and this is the one section that's called the flat. It's really densely populated, it's low-lying and it's home to more than 13,000 people but it was built on a former tidal wetland so that's kind of sandwiched between the hills, the harbour and the ocean. Are we talking um, you know out to the beautiful beaches of St Kilda and St Clair or is it more in that area around the the main centre of South Dunedin, the main town centre? It's quite a large area, so it does go into that kind of reach as well, but it's essentially, it's that large flat area that is south of the city centre. It's a lower socioeconomic area compared to, say, the hilly suburbs around the university? Definitely. So there's about 6,000-odd households, and about uh, 40% or more than 40% are rented. And one of the reasons why it's got a population where there is, I guess, older people and uh, people who perhaps have accessibility needs is because it is flat in a hilly city. It's it's easier for people to walk around, whereas parts of the uh, the city you'll be getting a getting up a sweat if you go to some of the hillier <laughs> suburbs. And also, it's, it has a real sense of community, doesn't it? People really like living there. Yes, it's something that's been mentioned by a lot of residents there. That's They love that community. That's part of the reason why they want to stay there. That's part of the reason why, as you know, we're talking about all these, these concerns are going, we don't want to leave, we don't want to be moving away from this area because that's that's why we're here. We're here because we like that there's there is a community feeling. Mm. Do you live in South Dunedin yourself, by any chance? I live on the in the highest suburb in Dunedin. <laughs> okay. So no, I am quite the opposite. I <laughs> I get snow on a far more frequent basis than uh, than South Dunedin does. In South Dunedin, it'd be more uh, a, a bit more of a a wetter foot than uh, snow. Yeah, unfortunately. yeah, and, and some of those wetter days. 
uh, quite wet days, shall we say. I mean, there's been some terrible flooding there in the last 10 years, hasn't there? Can you take me through the biggest events? The one that really sticks in people's minds and when you're speaking to people in the community, they go, oh, that's that's the sort of where was I when this happened? And that's mm. 2015. So that's when there was an absolute deluge of rain in 24 hours, more than 140 millimetres. Ever have this happen before? No, never. I don't think this house here has ever, ever been flooded and... Well, I've never known it like this. I've lived in all my life. I've never known it down here. I mean, you know, we've had water up here, but not like that. That's just out there, isn't it? What kind of chaos did this actually cause across South Dunedin? Jonathan Rowe is the manager of South Dunedin Future. That's the Otago Regional and Dunedin City Council project that developed the 16 ideas. Even though he's a born and bred Dunedinite, he wasn't there for the 2015 flood, but he certainly knows about it. That was the last big one we had. There have been uh, big ones before that, back in the 20s and, and, um, and 60s. And, and we've had a few close calls since 2015. Such, but, as, um, such as what? Basically just we, we, we had big storms, the, the, the kind of system filled up and any more rain and we would have had a big flood and, and then, of course, the rain stopped. So we got lucky a few times, um, but, you know, looking forward, seeing, seeing what's happened up north in Auckland and, you know, Tairawhiti and Hawke's Bay, we know this is going to get worse, so we, we need to be preparing for that. What kind of stories have you heard of 2015 and how bad it was? Oh, lots of stories. I mean, uh, when you get water coming in your house, um, you know, it, it's terrible. It's um, every homeowner, it's worst nightmare. So we, we've heard lots of stories about people having to move out, losing lots of their positions, um, you know, ha- having water that's contaminated with, with sewage um, in and around the place. It's, it's not pleasant and certainly something we want to avoid. Yeah, absolutely disgusting. And as you say, uh, with climate change, these events are going to get more more frequent. Um, so w- what does the modelling show? What could happen and how could it get worse? I mean, in a broad sense, you know, the atmosphere is heating up. So as it gets warmer, it can hold more moisture. And, and that means sort of, well, can mean more frequent and severe weather events. So more rain and more intensity. Coupled with that, South D has... A high water table underneath, so it's a former coastal wetland that um, you don't have to dig down too far, you know, 20, 30 centimetres at times to to get water puddling in the, in the bottom of the hole, and also it's, it's on the coast, so we've got sea level rise to think about, and the uh, kind of the mid-range projections for that, so, um, you know, neither, neither worst case or best case suggest something in the order of 60 centimetres of sea level by the end of the century, or sea level rise rather. For South Sea, a lot of it's a metre above sea level, um, on a good day. So that's that's kind of mean average sea level as well. So if you think about mm. the tide going up and down by 90 centimetres, there's some parts of South D now that'll be below high tide. We kind of talk about South D having water coming from all angles. So from, from below, from the groundwater, from the side, from the sea and from the, from the skies. So, you know, we, we've, got to, we've got to find a place for the water, basically. So that's where the South Dunedin Future Project comes in. We're working towards the plan and we're kind of it's multiple stages and we're kind of at the first stage now so we've got some options on the table. The community really wanted a way forward and a pathway. There's been a lot of talk about you know the problems and the issues with South D and there were some issues with the council infrastructure in 2015 as well. The, the pipes and the pumps didn't work the way that they should have and, and that made the flood worse. So there's been a lot of focus on kind of um, short-term, medium-term solutions around how do you kind of get that infrastructure you know up and running as good as it can and then sort of 
what do you tackle, what do you do in the long term? Because um, as we know, we're going to get more water. So the, the regional council, Targa Regional Council, has been doing a lot of scientific work, um, looking at sort of groundwater monitoring, sea level rise, that sort of thing, um, supported by uh, GNS Science, which is one of the Crown Institutes that does a lot of work in this space. So building a, kind of this big body of scientific knowledge that then I guess the City Council can then look at and say, OK, well, how do we manage all these risks? If they're going to get worse, if it's going to look like this in 50, 100 years' time, we need to be planning for that. We need to build, be building infrastructure for that. We need to be you know, enabling people to build houses or, or not based on that information. Yeah, so what stage is a plan at now? Or well, can you call it a plan yet? What, 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 what can you call it? We joke in the office it's kind of a plan for a plan. <laughs> okay. So this is a list of 16 different ideas, right? Yep, we've developed that on the basis of um, a lot of technical work, so engineers, um, scientists and the like, kind of telling us what we could do. Um, and we also did a whole lot of crowdsourcing with the community coming up with, I think they gave us 280 ideas oh. that we, yeah, yeah, yeah. So lots of people, you know, not, not a day goes by in the office where I, we don't hear from the community and they don't have a good idea for us. So we tried to kind of put all that in the, in the mix, um, work it all together and, and we kind of boiled it down to about 16 options. How did you get it from 280 to 16? <laughs> um, a lot of them are similar. A lot of people have said things like, you know, we need to fix the pipes when we build bigger pipes and pumps. And so you can kind of group that together because pumps and pipes are just about moving water around. It's just a way of doing that. So there are other ways of moving water around as well. You can, you know, you can have canals, you can have streams. They do, they effectively do the same thing, move water from one place to another. So you can kind of group them all into, and I guess what you could say now, we've got 16 groups and within those there's a number of different options as well so it's a long list and and we need to do some work to narrow that down and that's sort of the next stage of the program out of all of the 16 ideas you know if someone asked you like oh what's your the idea that kind of springs to mind first um what would it be for you one out of 16 pick one (laughs) (laughs) it's a challenging one i think the one i really like the idea of is that creating more space for water so like natural spaces so how do you maybe take a park that's currently flat and maybe look at lowering that so if and when it rains the flood water goes into the park and you might not be able to use the park for a couple of days but then it drains away and, and you're good again um, you know better the flooding goes there than going in our sort of homes and our living rooms and our basements etc so how do you look at this space in South D that's really highly developed there's a lot of concrete um, a lot of surfaces that the water hits those surfaces and it doesn't sink into the ground it sheets across and it goes into the stormwater system so how can we create more green space in this place where you know trees catch the water um, we've got more kind of grass areas where where the water can soak into the ground rather than kind of into the, the stormwater system and then maybe create some spots where water can drain into and maybe hold it for a few days and, and then then it can drain away so that's the type of initiative that we've kind of talked to people about and they have responded really well because when you think about an urban area a lot of people like the idea of you know more green space, more trees, um, less concrete. So this is where you start to get into that conversation around not just making South D safer, but also better. You know, how can we make it a better place to live if we're going to go through these changes? He talks about the other ideas being based on either a fight or flight approach. Down the fight end, you know, you can do protection. So we can build pumps, we can build pipes, um, we can build seawalls, and then you've also got at the flight end. Um, you know, managed retreat, um, planning to kind of, 
I, I guess, um, constrained development so we don't put more people in harm's way. And, and also maybe intensification in areas that are lower risk. So, you know, there might be parts of South D where there, there are currently single storied houses that um, if, if you develop those, you could put townhouses or, or you know, lower level apartment blocks and get lots of lots more people living in the same space. I t- heard some talk about the Forbury race course that used to, uh, well, it, you know, still exists. The land's still there. It still looks like a race course, doesn't it? But it doesn't exist as a race course anymore. Um, is there any kind of talk of that being a bit of a hub for like a, a pool or a pond or something? Absolutely. Potential. It, it has been in private ownership um, by a Forbury Park Raceway. And um, it's recently, or very soon, I think, it's going to be on the market. So it's a really for people that don't know South Sea, it's this massive, uh, it was a harness racing course, so a big sort of oval that's right down by the beach, kind of in the middle of South Sea. And it's very close to the beach, r- really low, um, so only sort of a metre, a metre and a half above that sea level I talked about before. So it's potentially a really big piece of the puzzle, and w- w- there's a lot of talk about that locally in the community, um, at the council, and um, if the wrong type of development were to occur in that area, and you know, it could make this job a whole lot harder. Similarly, if the right type of development um, occurred, you know, you might be able to. Um, that could be a big piece in solving this puzzle, basically. If, if if you could use that for parks or wetlands, or even moving things that are currently elsewhere in South D to that area, and then you use the, the areas that have been freed up for you know, new infrastructure or new housing or something. So it's a big kind of checkerboard, really, and you're kind of looking at how, how could you move this around to make it the safest possible to manage the risk and to kind of improve the experience of people living there. And how do you do all that in a way that doesn't kind of mess up people's lives? When Tess Brunton looked through all the plans, there was one in particular that sparked her interest. Spending the last five years or nearly six years in Dunedin you get used to the the layout of an area and so the idea of um, managed relocation which is one of the options that they've been discussing so they've sort of they mentioned two kind of I guess retreat options one's managed and one is a more reactive approach and so that's really if disaster strikes and residents can't return home how do we move people out of danger's way after something's happened where that managed relocation really is having a conversation with the community and saying hey this is the area where you are more likely for example to be impacted by flooding or liquefaction and so your best bet is to sort of move people out of harm's way before there's an issue so that can um, you know a more reactive is more an emergency evacuation or post-disaster buyouts or you know post-insurance withdrawal sort of buyouts that you're looking up to in the Hawke's Bay and um, Gisborne area. It's been revealed five Hawke's Bay councils have been offered a take-it-or-leave-it deal by the government. Whereas they're going, OK, that's something that's on the table, but it's definitely an area that we'd prefer not to go down. What's been the reaction to this from councillors and residents? I mean, it's still early days, but... What have people been saying? Well, these new solutions are really fresh. They only came out last week and councillors, the Dunedin City Council only considered and actually did approve to um, these this list of approaches to go out for consultation, likely a community or in-person consultation from next year. So there's been a, a range of sort of perspectives. So I covered the Dunedin City Council meeting where they voted in support of putting out this list of approaches to out for 
consultation, a community consultation. So some of the feedback that was getting there was the Mayor, Jules Raddick, who moved the item and said it was really important work for the city. The catastrophe in South Dunedin that hundreds of homes were flooded uh, in 2015. That was, you know, quite a significant event. We don't want that to be happening again, just to put it quite simply. And what about residents? Have you spoken to any residents out in South Dunedin? Are they hopeful? Are they scared? What are they saying? There's a mixture. There's been some, a lot of residents that have talked about their love for the community, but also their concerns. It can be intimidating when you hear about all the risks that are facing your community. We'd like to stay here. We're in an old house. We've been here 30 years. And, yeah, we'd just like to be able to stay if we can, but whether that's possible, I don't know. But I think that the way that this has been approached is there was a lot more acceptance and a lot more understanding because of the work that's been undergone. Although South Dunedin Future has said that there is still a lot more work to try and get into those communities because you are talking about people that, for some, they don't want to hear what's going on because they're worried about insurance, what this could mean for their property values. So there's some that don't want to know what's going on, but if, in some instances, if this is your only asset, you need to know what's going on. Like This is part of your community. I guess it's a case of, um, you know, the hardest stuff, it'll happen a little bit later, but this change will happen incrementally, right? Correct. So we've got a couple of years now to kind of figure out the plan, and then this thing's got a kind of 100-year horizon. So one of the things we want to really guard against and, and get people kind of moving away from is this idea that, you know, do we stay or do we go? This kind of black and white issue of we, we dig in for as long as we can, and then there's a day that comes where everyone is out that's what we want to avoid. We want a situation where you gradually kind of transition and reshape South D so that you can kind of change where people live, the way people live, um, all the services and infrastructure to a way that not matches the kind of environment we've had in the past but suits the environment we're going to have in the future. Yeah, yeah, big challenges ahead for sure. Uh, but a lot of this, I mean, it, this, all these ideas don't have any costs, do they? These are just ideas. Why is that? So they will have costs. It's a bit early at this stage. I think we, we could throw some numbers on it, but it would be kind of some, some pretty high-level guesswork. The next stages will have, have the costs included because part of that process is kind of the trade-offs. You know, which one do we like most? Well, this one... Yeah, it reduces the flooding, but it's 10 times the cost of the other one. So maybe we'd favour that. One of the issues we have with climate adaptation in New Zealand and globally and also in South D is that question around who pays for what. So is this the council that pays for it? Is it the insurers? Is it the banks? Is it the house owners? Is it central government? Do they come in? And what does that look like? Because if you go and chat to a homeowner in South D and say, hey, look, um, we think we should um, double the size of the pipe network under, in your block or underneath your house. They might say, hey, that's great. But then if we turn around and say, and by the way, we're going to you know, double your rates to fund it, they might have a different view of that. So cost is going to be really important. Who pays is going to be really important. And that's kind of part of this next stage. Yeah, and those are all things that you have to figure out. It's not just a conversation for Dunedinites. It's a conversation uh, with central government too, isn't it? Dunedin Council wants the government to help fund managed retreat from flood-prone properties in the south of the city. 
And it's already in discussions with Treasury about what it calls a voluntary acquisition scheme that would see property bought on the open market over decades. Yes, and we've seen that up north. The, the central government and the councils came up with a bit of a cost-sharing arrangement for that. You know, we've seen all those floods in Westport in recent years and the council there came to an agreement with the government around some contributions. Almost $23 million is to be invested in a flood protection program for Westport. But at some point this all becomes a bit unaffordable as well in terms of taxpayers and ratepayers funding all this. So that's one of the reasons why we're kind of looking at how, how might how might you do it a bit differently in South D? You know, could we get ahead of the game by, say, purchasing some properties that might not be high risk now but will be high risk in the future and maybe renting those out, for example, and, and recouping some of that cost and that might pay off over a decade or two? And then, then we might move out of those areas. But because we've collected rental income for a couple of decades, you know, that's offset two-thirds of the cost, for example. So there's lots of different models, I think, and one of the things we're trying to do is figure out how could you do all this in a way that has the least impact on the community, so do it kind of gradually and voluntarily, and at the same time, you know, not, not put the council or the government into a kind of financial dire straits. Would you say this is significant nationally? We've talked a lot about the cyclone from earlier this year and what happened in Hawke's Bay and Tairapiti, but... Dunedin's taken a lot of initiative on this, yeah? We've kind of been compelled into action, if you like. And I think there's some really good uh, foresight and forethought from from people that sort of came before me in these roles that decided to set this thing up and and start looking at it. And then I think the events up north earlier this year in Auckland and um, with the cyclone have just kind of reinforced the importance of this. That's it for today. I'm Tom Kitchen. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. This episode was engineered by Rangi Poek. It was produced by Mark Jennings and Alexia Russell. Thanks to Tess Brunton and Jonathan Rowe. Ka kite anō.